I think the truth is, is that they already see freedom, even behind bars. I think they already see it. Whatever happens as a result of this writ, I think they're already in a place where they are comfortable with who they are and what they've done. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor. Once again, Carm is on the case. I was just talking about how lovely it is to have her with me every Sunday night at the end of a very long week uh, of podcasting, taking care of my children. No better way to put a uh, bow on the week, Carm, than to uh, sit here with my lovely mother. Go on, go on. Uh, so Lyle and Eric Menendez, that is what we're talking about, an act, a very serious topic. Uh, they were convicted of the grisly 1989 shotgun murders of their parents, Jose and Mary Louise Kitty Menendez, uh, at the family's sprawling Beverly Hills mansion. And they have been uh, first in jail pending the trials and then in prison ever since. Uh, small factoid, which I think I shared last time, they actually grew up most of their lives uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, and I played tennis at the East Brunswick Racquet Club with who else but Eric and Lyle Menendez. They were a lot better than me, so they were on court one. I was on court two, but a lot of the people who were uh, who provided testimony at their first and second trials are people that uh, I knew personally and uh, have known of them. I wasn't close friends with them, uh, but know a lot of people in common, so it's a small Small world after all. But the question now is, do they have a new shot at freedom after a bombshell uh, revelation in a new new documentary supporting the brothers' claims of sexual abuse by their dad, Jose Menendez, as well as a new letter, uh, which is actually an old letter that has recently surfaced? Best guess to break this all down besides Carm. We've got Sarah Azari. She is a high-profile criminal defense attorney based in Los Angeles. She has decades of experience defending complex felonies from investigation through trial in state and federal courts across the nation. Sarah has also been a media legal analyst across platforms from news to crime shows. And she's known, and she admits this, for her unfiltered, unbiased, and informative legal point of view. Unfiltered and unbiased like you, Carm. And then we've got John Della De Torre. He is a licensed psychologist in Texas, Arizona, and New York State. He's also a psychological analyst for television news and court shows. He is a certified clinical traumatologist and has completed basic training as a negotiator and a mediator. And he works with uh, some victims as well of uh, domestic violence. Uh The documentary, by the way, is out on Peacock right now. It is called uh, the Menendez. It's called Menendez and Menudo Boys Betrayed. Uh, Carm, you actually, by the way, there's going to be a special Patreon slash YouTube member event with this one and a best guest yet to be determined on May 18th with a time yet to be determined. And uh, you'll be there. You excited to host that, Carm? I am excited. Okay, excellent. So you I seem don't very, sound excited. You seem very subdued, Carmen. I'm, I forced. I'm, I'm abnormally relaxed. I for, yeah, that's always whenever she's too relaxed, I think something is wrong. I forced her to watch a documentary on chimpanzees as well. I give her assignments. 
on Netflix. It's an amazing documentary. And Carmela came away with it by saying she was sad because chimps have difficult lives in the rainforest protecting themselves and their children. So maybe that's why she's a tad morose tonight. But Carm, you watched this documentary. Uh, about was, the Menendez, not the chimpanzee. Correct. About the Menendez. Back to the Menendez. Very good for, uh, yes, for delineating that. What, what was your takeaway, Carm, from this documentary? Well, I, it would be like starting at the very end to bring up what my takeaway was because I did watch all the episodes. It's a, it's a what is it called? The like true, a true crime docu-series. Docu-series, that's what it is. And at the end, as a totally lay person, uh, I felt that there was not enough reason or cause from this documentary to have another trial or to uh, make other. Uh, Let me ask you this. Did you believe that this uh, person from Menudo, Roy, whose Roy, last name? Rossello. Rossello. Did you feel that he was um, credible? Did you believe him? He was credible, 100%. I felt my intuition said he was credible, but 99% of what he was talking about was accusing, uh, what is the name of the... Jose Menendez, the father. No, 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 it's not Jose Menendez. It's the it's the person who was taking one second. I'll tell you in one second. As she leaves through her notes, Sarah. So, Sarah, you are... you, you well, have it Just let me finish this, you, okay? One second. The, the guy who was the manager of the Menudo band, band whose name uh, I do not who, know. He's accusing, and other teammates are accusing this... Uh, agent and his name is i think uh dia's last name but they are accusing him and it's very credible but it only tangentially touches on on uh jose Menendez. now did they accuse the 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 manager of sexual abuse as well only the manager uh sexual abuse uh, very clearly over a, a extended period of time, and as the usual story, it was because of the poverty of the of this Roy uh, Rossello. Rossello as a fourteen year old child. Mm -hmm. And I okay, didn't know he, I didn't know this, but he Menudo went along with it because his mother was raising alone children. And Menudo had something like thirty band members, and all Ricky Martin was one of them. No, no, and, no, no, and, no. And over a, a period of a, time, over a period of time, and a lot of them were, in fact, maybe we let uh, them sexually go. abused. Sarah, I know um, you're very interested in this case, and uh, you and I are somewhat similar in age. Um, what got you interested in this? I mean, this is um, the first trial was actually predates OJ, uh, mm -hmm. and then there was a second trial after the OJ Simpson trial, but. What uh, piqued your interest uh, to begin with in this? Well, first of all, I think the conclusion from what you said about the tennis club and stuff is that you're bougie. You're bougie like the Menendez brothers, right? <laughs> you, were, you were playing tennis at the same club. I'm, um, I'm what I call a blue-collar tennis player. I grew up all in right, a well, very, very well, blue-collar sort of town, but I played tennis. But the what I always remember, the image of these brothers and their little tennis you know, uniforms. I mean, that's sort of what sticks out to me when I think about this trial. But um, yeah, OJ and Menendez were the two trials that I was absolutely fascinated by at a time where, I mean, I watched the trial, I remember everything, but I was not a lawyer. 
And and I always, in the context of Alec Murdoch's trial, I would always say that, you know, Alec Murdoch is like the third trial that I've been as fascinated by, except the difference is I'm a lawyer, so I'm looking at it from a different perspective. But, you know, the writ uh, that um, uh, two attorneys, one of them being Mark Garagos, who's a friend of mine, um, had filed with um, L.A. County Superior Court has a lot of meat to it. Um, So I disagree with your mom uh, because... It's not just about the Menudo band member, Rosello, um, and his allegation that has now come up. I, I think there were two, and I, I have not watched the documentary, so full disclosure, but according to the writ, the documentary reveals that Rosello was um, anal, essentially anally sodomized by Jose Menendez on two occasions. Now, whether you believe him or not is a different story, but it does corroborate that Jose Menendez was an abuser, was a child predator, and that's not the only evidence that this writ is raising as sort of newly discovered evidence since the convictions. It's also saying, and this to me, this is the more key piece of evidence that is direct as to the brothers, is that um, Andy Cano, who's now I think deceased, but is a cousin of, of Eric and Lyles, there was a letter that Eric wrote to him eight months before the murders, very clearly saying that he just doesn't know when it's going to happen next. He feels like his father is going to walk in the room any minute, clearly uh, alluding to this assault, you know, ongoing sort of abuse by, by his father. So these are two very big revelations. Frankly, you know, having written writs of habeas corpus and seen many of them, this has a lot more meat than what I'm usually used to seeing. The question is, is how is the court going to view this evidence in the context of self-defense? Because, and please tell me if I need to shut up and I'm running my mouth. No, not, just- no not at all. I, I just think that, um, well, two things. Uh, you know, Carmela's long story career is uh, an attorney. Uh, she seems to differ with you, yeah. having never gone to law school. Uh, but um, what is a writ of habeas corpus? Some people are not going to know what that is. to begin Yeah. With. So uh, it, it, this is basically a fundamental right that we have according to the constitution and also the each state's constitution um, that essentially protects us from unlawful detentions. So it's the last resort. It means that you have gone through the appellate courts, you've gone up to the Supreme Court of the state, obviously, and now your, uh, your fallback is this habeas corpus written. So there's different factors or bases that you could bring this writ for, one of them being newly discovered evidence. Um, and of course, the prosecution has a has an opportunity to respond to it. And then the court would hold an evidentiary hearing to essentially determine um, whether there's enough there to release you. I don't want to say it's based on fairness factors, but it, but it's not based on an appellate record. So it's not like they're going to go through, you know, uh, e- errors that, you know, maybe the jury made or the judge made, which is what an appeal is about. This is more about wrongfully detaining a body. That's why it's rid of habeas corpus, corpus in Latin meaning body, um, for a period of time that should be released. Uh, so there is that sort of fairness element to it that is not really present in a, in a strictly in an appellate process. Um, and I think, you know, there's a couple things that could happen if this evidentiary hearings held held, and then the judge looks further into the credibility of the claims that the writ makes, 
um, they could be released. Their sentence could be reduced now, reduced to what? I mean, they've already almost done 30 years. So I would think that the relief would be to release them. Um, so it's, it's very, very critical. And I think, you know, what, what the court has to determine is this trial number one versus trial number two. That's really at the crux of their claim. They're saying in trial number one, there were critical witnesses who corroborated Lyle and Eric's testimony that they were victims of abuse and that they were not saying they didn't shoot the parents. They admitted to that. They were saying this isn't murder. It's voluntary manslaughter because we have an imperfect self-defense. An imperfect self-defense is basically, you know, regular self-defense is any reasonable person would have shot and killed the, the victim, right? Imperfect self-defense is no, it's actually unreasonable, but you had an honest personal belief that you had to do that to protect yourself. That's what we're dealing with here. And I'm very, you know, I'm very interested in hearing um, Dr. Delatore on the issue of, I see this as akin to battered women's syndrome and the idea that a battered woman might turn around and kill her spouse or partner, not in that moment where they think they're going to get hit or there's going to be violence, but just based on an accumulation of years and history of abuse. And, and I, that's how I see um, Kyle and Eric's claims. In trial number two, when they took all the, the critical witnesses out, so there was no corroboration of the abuse, guess what? The DA got up and said, don't buy the abuse excuse. Can you just imagine if any prosecutor in the country made that argument today, don't buy the abuse excuse. I mean, we're all about, you know, protecting victims today. We're, you know, still going on with the Me Too thing. It's unbelievable what a difference that made. The first trial, the, the jury was hung because uh, the issue was, is it murder or manslaughter? They were hung. And the second trial, both brothers were convicted. So that yeah. was critical evidence. Yeah. So uh, Dr. John Delatore, to you, uh, to Sarah's point, is this akin in some way to battered wife syndrome, but with uh, children being abused by their father um, and they just merely, you know, snap for lack of a better clinical term? Well, it's important to remember that no one ever just snaps, right? That that doesn't happen. There's a buildup of emotional distress that occurs. So that that doesn't happen. I think the real problem that we're running into uh, revolves around the mens rea associated with each of these crimes, whether it's murder or manslaughter. When we're thinking about battered women, I have no problems connecting the two, right? This is someone being uh, sexually abused, similar to someone experiencing domestic and intimate partner violence. I don't have a problem with linking those two. I don't think they're quite the same, but if, if we want to sort of think about psycho-legally, right? then yes, let's go ahead and lump them together. But it doesn't change the mens rea associated with the murder or a manslaughter charge, right? So purposeful, knowing, reckless, negligent. The issue that we're running into is that the person wanted, the person being abused, wanted the other person dead, the abuser dead. So I think that's where you probably did need to stick to a self-defense claim or some kind of diminished capacity claim that they were somehow temporarily insane, right? Or something like that. So I, I think, was there a defense there where they could utilize the abuse? I think there was. I think the problem ended up being that the psychologist that they had had this cockamamie reason as to why all of this stuff was like now being revealed. I, Am I linking the two? Yeah, I, can, I, can, I absolutely do that. But I still think you run into the problem that 
even if a jury believes them and says, okay, yeah, you were abused, but you didn't act recklessly or negligent. Like, like you still acted that way. You still acted like that. So uh, you're probably still going to get convicted of those kinds of things. So I think you needed to take the step, a step further and do an affirmative defense and use the abuse and just overwhelm the jury with evidence documenting that the abuse so that they say, no, you're not guilty of any of these crimes. You either diminished capacity or you're insane or something like that. Carm? My point in the very beginning was that Roy Rossello talked a lot about the the abuse, the ongoing abuse by his... um, by the band's um, agent, but he only told one story of being in the home of the Menendez home, and and he tells the story that uh, Jose Menendez, the father, gave him a glass of wine, and even though he was only 13, he made him drink this glass. He says, drink it, it's an expensive wine, drink it down. And then after that, he remembers going through a corridor and waking up in a hotel. In an, in other words, mm-hmm. as, a, as a lawyer, uh, I don't know if he proved that, he, that anything happened. He said after that he was bleeding and he wasn't feeling well, but I don't know if the, that part uh, stands, uh, you know, strongly See, I, need, I need karma on my jury. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I defend people on 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 abuse charges, um, I totally get that. That's a good point. I just think that when you're dealing with children um, and the trauma that is associated with sexual abuse, and when they say at pain, at bleeding, um, this happened not once but twice, where these sort of weird circumstances occurred involving this person, and then you have all these other witnesses who'd already testified claiming that they had witnessed um, not sexual abuse, but just abusive behavior by Jose Menendez. You know, when that evidence came in, the prosecution could not argue he is not an abusive man, which they did in the second trial because that evidence did not come in. Um, so the, like, like what Dr. Delatore said, I mean, maybe it is that you're overwhelming the jury with this idea that the defendants are actually victims, not defendants. And that sort of clouds maybe some of their <laughs> deliberation on the on the real issue, but I think it's important that there. I mean, there is a theory of imperfect self defense. That's why we have that. It may not be reasonable to everybody, but it was reasonable to them. And the question was, were they being honest about that belief or that fear? And when you have those other witnesses coming in and corroborating their testimony. Then, the, then it's, you know, at least there was a split amongst the jurors. But when you pull those witnesses out, obviously you get, you know, a slam dunk unanimous guilty verdict. And so, look, I think the, the writ um, by Garagos and Gardner is saying there's really one poignant issue that was before the juries in both of these trials. And that was, was there sexual abuse of Lyle and Eric? I don't know that I 100% agree that that was the only issue. I think there's a second part to that issue. And that is, even given that the, the jurors may have believed that there were there was abuse uh, as to both Carl, I mean, Kyle and Lyle, I mean, Eric and Lyle. Lyle. Yeah. Kyle, 
Kyle and Eric. Eric and Lyle. 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 That, you know, was what about the reasonableness of their, or unreasonableness, but honest of their belief, you know, that they had to kill the president. And, you know, to, to Dr. Della Del Torre's point, that's exactly what the prosecution argued, that, that there was premeditation, that they wanted the money, that there was wealth involved. They went on some, I remember, spending sprees. There was um, a spending spree, yeah. There was a there was this big spending spree. Uh, I told this story last time, which is kind of interesting, obviously, in retrospect. But again, we had some mutual friends. And um, I'll never forget the story where some of my friends who were friends with them were at their party uh, at their home in Princeton and they had a, a white rug in like the entrance way. And they had a huge party when the parents were away, as you do when you're in high school and someone spilled red wine and it was either Lyle or Eric and their reaction was such an overreaction. They were like, you don't understand. My dad's going to kill me. Like they were scared for their, literally scared for their lives. Not in nor, you know, not a, Oh my God, I'm, my parents are going to kill me. It was like, a, Oh my God, my dad will kill me. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember that sticking out in my mind. Um, we're going to get into all these details uh, throughout this hour, but John Delatore, we have the best uh, community in all of true crime and they're ready uh, sending tons of questions our way. So Sonny Tanner, right out of the box, and this is a tough one, I'm sure, for you to answer. But for the doctor, the killers relive the act and feel okay, or do they file it away, or are they haunted for a period of time after? I mean, these guys killed; uh, they're different than, uh, I guess, the type of killer that Brian Cober Koberger is suspected of, of being or alleged uh, to be. But um, in in regards to the Menendez brothers, how would you answer this question here? Can you? Uh, in regards to the Menendez, I, you know, that that's a hard question because here's something that's really going to that's really going to blow Sonny's mind. Uh, there are some killers that not only relive the act, they masturbate to ejaculation to it while it's playing in their head. That's mm -hmm. the, like that. That's their sexual fantasy. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about some of these individuals and, and we can even talk about Brian Coburg, too, I'm not entirely convinced that they are remembering the event, number one, at all. And number two, they're not remembering the event as if it's to be glorified. Mm -hmm. Not entirely convinced that that's really what's happening, particularly with the Menendez brothers. I think if we, if we are to assume that they were abused pretty horrifically and decided that they were going to take the law into their own hands because the law wasn't helping them for whatever reason, then they may feel justified, but no one would want to remember that then because it's not a source of it, it's not a source of glory for them. It's something that they felt that they had to do in order to keep themselves safe. These individuals would most likely try to do what they can to forget it. Maybe not forget, but certainly put it in a place where they're not thinking about it all that much. Um, so for full disclosure, I did speak today with the uh, producer and the director of this documentary, who's actually from Miami. Her name is Neri Yinklin. And uh, she gave me some kind of good information. They're not able to come on right now um, because of some legal issues that are still ongoing. Uh, and, and obviously with what's going on with Mark Garagos and that uh, habeas corpus that he filed. But um she did say uh, on the record to me that cases of patricide are extremely rare and triggered by one of two things, mental illness or horrible abuse. Uh, 
If Eric and Lyle Menendez had been 18 and 20-year-old young women who had been raped and threatened by their father since they were five years old, would the system have shown them mercy after they served 20 years, 25 years, 30 years? What about that, Sarah? If they were uh, Lyalita and Erica Menendez, would this be a different story right now? Lyalita. <laughs> Lolita. Lolita is better Lolita, than Lyalita. Lolita, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, look, I, I think what changed that uh, for us was the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial. The idea that um, victims of abuse or abuse does not, you know, choose the victim based on gender and that a, a man could also be a victim of abuse. Um, I think it doesn't matter what side you took in that in that trial. I think it was pretty evident that it was a toxic relationship and that the abuse worked both ways. Um, and so, again, I think had these boys been tried today, it would be very different that number one, I don't think that any court would even remotely try to justify not admitting um, this corroborating evidence by way of witnesses, um, let alone to allow a prosecutor to argue, don't buy the abuse excuse. And and I think that that we are in a different place where we have a broader definition of what abuse looks like, that it's not just violence. It's also mental abuse, that it's also, it extends to men, not just women. Um, so I think we're just in a different time, you know, and, and I, I think some of that is they're probably banking on that before the court. Baby doll chiming in a friend of the show. Carm looks beautiful. You have no idea what I have to spend on lighting and makeup. She demands it. <laughs> she absolutely demands it before coming here. Uh, back to Neri Yanklin, the director of this Thank film. Uh, she has said that more than 35 family and friends because uh, there's a couple of vocal family members who say, keep these boys uh, in prison. But more than 35 uh, family members and friends have come forward to say openly that they knew these boys were being sexually abused by their father, um, including uh, Kitty's aunt and niece, that is the mother. Um, John, as a broader question, what does it do to a family structure when little kids are being sexually abused. I mean, does, does the entire family dynamic come crashing down? Um, because it seems like family members are at odds with themselves all these years later. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer because my instinct is to tell you this, that if sexual abuse was happening in the family, then there was never a secure family structure that, that, that was in the household at all. Uh, you, we have some communities that would, uh, sweep the, 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 the crime under the rug. They'd never tell anybody that it would just be a, a secret that everybody knew. Um, it, could it shatter families? I think it shatters families when someone doesn't want to hear it. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if people know that it's happening and someone has come out and, and said, you know, I'm tired of this happening, I'm going to call it out. I think it only shatters the people that want to keep it a secret. I'm not, not, I think for the most part, there was never a secure family of sexual abuses occurring within it. And so that, that puts me in a very difficult position because what I'm saying is that people always know, and that can be very difficult for some, for some people to hear because it makes it seem like I am saying that it, we'll just genderize it that the mother is allowing sexual abuse to occur. And I, 
I don't think that. What I'm saying is that there are times and situations in which the manipulation and coercion that go into sexually abusing a child is being used in a form against the the co-parent to ensure that the co-parent isn't going to to come out and and say something against the abuser. So it's not that I think people condone it. It's that I think everyone is being abused and everyone is being manipulated and coerced. They're just, it's happening in different ways. And so it only shatters. Don't you think that, I mean, I've, I've had both. So there's, there's two cases that I, uh, well, there's one case type of case I don't take at all, which is animal abuse. And then child molestation cases, I really vet them because there are cases where there's a dynamic, there's a, a, step parent potentially um there's you know reasons and motivations why the child is set up to fabricate allegations but then there are clearly certain instances where the abuse is very real so i'm very careful about which ones i turn down which ones i take but not too long ago well actually it's been a while now maybe 10 years ago or so I ended up representing a guy at the time when I took the case, I thought that it was just a bunch of baloney that these his daughters had made up allegations of sexual abuse turned out to be very real. Um, he himself had been, you know, it was that cycle of, of abuse. He himself had been um, molested as a child by a family member. And he was very clearly having full intercourse with his daughters, biological daughters when they were turning eight and it was just going on every, you know, every other day, all the time. Um, the mother to me was complicit in it because it's, it's, I don't know whether she didn't want to know or what, but she absolutely, she came to the preliminary hearing and lied and said that the, the girls are just mad at their father and they're making all this up. It's all fabricated. Sure. And, and, and I'm going, what I'm going to say just off the top is that, yeah, there are absolutely some women who, who would sell their children off and, you know, let them be sexual abu- sexually abused just for whatever reason. That's that's absolutely true. Well, in that case, it was because the the the, the husband was this was a you know low income Hispanic family. The husband was the breadwinner. She didn't want her husband to go to jail for a long time. Right. Period. So then, so then, yeah. is she complicit, or is she in a way, and is she in a position where she's being economically coerced into not okay, fair not, enough, not giving this coerced, but not protecting her children, nonetheless, right? I, I mean, but yeah, no, no, no. no. And again, I, again, it's it's one of those things where I I, I want to I want everybody to understand that I never condone abusive behaviors, yeah. and I believe everyone is making a choice when they allow abusive behaviors to happen to people that they are supposed to protect. But we also have to recognize that some of these individuals who are supposed to protect other people are also being coerced in ways that we don't quite understand because we're looking at it well you're only abused if you're physically abused or you're sexually abused or emotionally abused but there are other ways that you can abuse someone that aren't those kinds we need to recognize those times as well Mm -hmm. and apply it to our calculus when we're trying to figure out who's actually complicit and the only person that i'm ever going to say is absolutely complicit is the person who did the abusing Mm -hmm. you're a uh, you're a fabulous mother you raised a fantastic uh, Son. son a uh, mediocre daughter, but a fantastic son. Um, I have do you to consider tell you in the case of the Menendez. I couldn't get the question out. No, because Go I'm ahead. not interested. Go ahead. Uh, in the case of the Menendez uh, situation, uh, it wasn't uh, economic coercion. It was uh, it was uh, much more uh, 
difficult thing to deal with. Uh, the the wife was allegedly on drugs and uh, not heavy drugs, but tranquilizers and alcohol. And she was a weak person, and he he was the head of the of RCA, and he ruled with you know ran RCA with an iron fist, and he ran his family with an iron fist. And I I was just checking when the day he was murdered, he was only forty five year old, so he was a strong, energetic young male, mm-hmm. and he was holding he was in total control over the family. And even over the Menudo, who, who he um, ma- managed and promoted, for, uh, and they cut um, uh, records for RCA, mm-hmm. he was controlling them also. And when there was a lawsuit against abuse of the Menudo boys, um, they they really shut the person who who complained. It was a journalist who, in the at the time when the Menudo were very popular, a journalist came out and accused of them of um, sexually abusing the boys, and they were the 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 journalist was destroyed, and during this um, they went after that target. But my question yeah. to you, Carm, was going to be: Do you find? Do you think Kitty Menendez? was complicit yes, by turning 100%, a blind eye. Yes. 100%. She she didn't she didn't want to see what she was seeing and she did she didn't know how to deal with it. She didn't want to deal with it. She was one of those very disgustingly weak people. And and John Delatore, um sexual abusers like like Jose Menendez what part of this is a quote unquote sexual experience and what part of it is a control issue? Because as Carmela just alluded to, this guy was a very high level music executive running a company. Uh, you know, he, he was a Cuban immigrant. He came here. His, he grew up culturally different for sure in a communist country where they do rule with an iron fist. And then he well, got no, here. No. What, what, um, no, 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 no. What? Okay, forget. You so let's right. cut into my questions right, here. Right. So, I mean, to you, John, what what part of this was control, and what part of it was just utter perversity on his part? Uh, my answer to that is yes, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. Because I can't, I can't get. There's, there's no like it's fifty percent power and fifty yeah. percent sex. I, I can't yeah. give it, and, and that 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 wouldn't be accurate either. Uh, because the but is there an is, element of both? Is there an element? There's of always an element of both, right? There's an element of attention. There's power seeking. There's control. There's revenge, right? There's all different kinds of reasons that people engage in misbehavior. That's that's kind of what we just give an umbrella term to any kind of inappropriate behavior. But when it comes to sexual abuse, yeah, it's about power, but it's also about sex as well. And so. What were what? What I think the better question is: is what was the justification that he was giving himself to engage in these abusive behaviors? Because it's always going to be about power, and it's always going to be about sex. I mean, I can't give you a percentage because it's a hundred percent both. Um, but I think what really would have been interesting for me to hear is if he's engaged in these behaviors, what justification did he have? It was it just I owe I, I'm owed this because I give all the I give my kids money and I give all of these other kids you know record deals and stuff like that I'm owed this so then then that tells us more about how much power 
was the dominant force in terms of his abuse. If it was just that I'm teaching these guys how to be men, right? Uh, you know, this is uh, how uh, how we express sexuality. Then that tells us more about that it is about sexual gratification. So there's more to learn from the justifications and rationalizations that people use than whether or not it's just about power or sex, because it's always about power and sex. And I probably should have done this within the first 10 seconds. I'll do it now. But Laura says, hi, Dr. John. I watch you on Core TV, followed by like the glasses, Sarah, even though she took them off. I like the glasses, too. Uh, and they are gone. They are no longer on her either her head or her face. But um, <laughs> there they go. Quick. Uh, so just a quick background, because not everyone is super up to date on this case. The Menendez brothers are currently serving life sentences without the possibility of parole after they were convicted, uh, convicted of these first degree murders for fatally shooting both their parents. That happened in 1989. And at trial, they did, as we said, admit to the shooting, uh, but claimed that the killings followed years of sexual abuse and sought a lesser charge of manslaughter, uh, which the trial judge did not allow the jury to consider. Um, the theory of defense at both trials was very straightforward. Neither Eric or Lyle denied the shooting. Again, they said it was manslaughter. The state's theories in both trials was also straightforward. They said that they were lying about the sexual abuse, that it had never happened, and that they had killed their parents, not in self-defense, but to inherit their money. So uh, there you go. Um, now, Sarah, I know that uh, you know Mark Aragos, and I think you used to uh, uh, work with him. But um, So he filed this petition along with another attorney named Cliff Gardner, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they basically say that had jurors in this uh, motion that they filed, had jurors seen the letter Eric Menendez wrote to Andy Cano and mm -hmm. learned that Jose Menendez anally raped and orally copulated a 13 or 14 year old boy in 1984, the prosecutor would not have been able to argue that the abuse never happened. So the argument was made that the abuse never happened. And we're going to get to this letter in a second. Um, what is the, how does this writ of habeas corpus now navigate the court system? Uh, does this something that move? does it move along quickly? Does it move along faster because they're so high profile, because Mark Aragos is attached to it? What, it, what is the fate of this writ now that is? No, sadly for Mark, there's no Garagos priority here. It's yeah. still going to move <laughs> forward the way, it, you know, Joe Schmo's uh, writ would move forward. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, the state's theory was the same. The defense theory was the same. What was different was the evidence. That's what, you know, got them convicted. And so now they're saying, look, um, you know, the, 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 not only you should not have excluded the evidence that came in in the first trial, because obviously it made a difference, but but now we have um, additional corroboration that you know it's, this is this is Eric writing a letter, so it's from the defendant before the murders to a, a person that testified. So it's it's even more important than the Menudo um, allegations, which is really someone else. It shows a pattern and scheme. But the, but the letter to the cousin is 
has to do exactly with one of the defendants and the abuse that he suffered at the hands of Jose Menendez. Um, you know, the next step is going to be an evidentiary hearing that's going to get set. I'm not exactly sure how quickly, but I would think that number one, the uh, DA has to have an opportunity to respond to this writ. And then the court will have a full-fledged hearing. Um, there's going to be um, references and, um, you know, ex I think they're cited in the writ as well. Parts of the transcript of both trials will be referenced heavily. And then they'll also um, put on testimony. I mean, I would imagine maybe Rosello would testify. You know, Andy Cano, the person that received, the cousin that received the letter from Eric is deceased, I understand. Um, but the circumstances around how that letter was found, you know, I think the mother found it or something, she might have to testify because one of the issues with a writ is timeliness. The idea that, you know, did, how long did you wait before you bring this writ? How long were you aware of the newly discovered evidence and did you sit on that? And I, there's a whole section in this writ where Gardner and Garagos really get into, you know, the attempts of the brothers made, they were aware that this letter was there. They were trying to find it. They then, you know, asked family members to look for it. And then finally they found, so they've laid out a timeline, which I don't know if, I mean, it didn't seem unusually delayed to me. Um, but you know, but that's something the court will also consider because the court just could go very technically and say, it's just too late. You know, um, well, although habeas, habeas corpus writ can break, be brought at any time, it still needs to be brought um, not not too long after the dis, uh, additional evidence is discovered. Is there a statute of limitation on this? Or? No, no. Uh, I, so so I, legally, wait a second. Yeah. I I have to say this because um, uh, Ros uh, Roy Rosello uh, Rosello now filed a, a criminal oh. case. Uh, against a dead uh, two months ago. Against who? Against against the, the, manager. the manager. Okay, got it. It's killing me that I didn't write down the manager's name. So I. But you did write down Lyle, older Eric Younger. I'm looking at your notes, Carm. You're on top of it. Yeah, you're on top you. of it. Thank so, you. So thank you do have you. that. The point is that the point is before he filed a criminal case, he uh, this guy Roy Rossello went. To all the ex uh, Menudo uh, oh, children, and now middle-aged men, and he got uh, he had a conversation with them. That's part of the documentary, and they all made the commitment that they will testify. Hmm. So that well, what would they be testifying to, Carm? Uh, well, that's my problem. That they would be testifying that the the. But but that's to the to the manager. To the manager, not the, the Jose manager Menendez. abused them on an ongoing basis. Yeah, so but at the same time, they said that the, the manager, when when Jose Menendez was the head of RCA, uh, they lived in in uh, Princeton in Princeton, and he brought out the this one guy Rossello, the one that he. Lived with really mm -hmm. when they were touring and so he forth. He brought him to the home, and he brought him and he offered him up to Jose Menendez, and so that will probably come out. Well, you know what? You know this is uh, the analogy I would draw is with the Cosby case. Remember, in Cosby in Pennsylvania, 
when they prosecuted him, there was the woman that was the accuser where the statute was still good on her. Um, but there were a slew of women who were bad act uh, witnesses whose statutes had run, but the court allowed them. And I think there were, that was bad too. That's why it's one of the reasons why his con- thing, conviction was overturned. Um, there were just one too many. One too many women came in who did not have their day in court on their claims, but they certainly were allowed to testify to show a pattern of conduct by the defendant. So Rosello at, at, at a criminal trial being the victim of Diaz can certainly, um, or the DA can move to um, present testimony of all those other boys who may also say they were abused or they witnessed abuse, but maybe those claims are not um, viable because the statute has run on them, but they can certainly come in as prior bad act witnesses uh, to some, you know, not everybody, obviously there's a limit um, under the code, but you know, the court to determine can determine the relevance, the prejudice, et cetera, and not allow them to testify. But I don't think that in the writ hearing, the evidentiary hearing for the writ for Menendez brothers, that, you know, that those guys could come in and testify because that's got to do with the manager, not with Menendez, Jose Menendez. But I do think Rosello is a relevant witness because it goes directly, it contradicts directly the DA's closing argument that Jose Menendez would never be violent. He was not a predator. He was not an abuser. I mean, you know, so someone, someone who allegedly, I mean, this is an accusation right now, but, you know, he experienced abuse at the hands of Jose Menendez. So I think he would be relevant, but not the other Menudo brother, I mean, Menudo band members. Yeah. Uh, and to, to that point, uh, Laura Waldy asked this question, uh, Sarah, this is a legal standpoint here. Uh, Jose Menendez is now deceased. He has been for many years. How can new allegations that he abused other boys stick if he is now gone? Um, you know, it's just their word against his word, which there is no word. Right. Well, that's where you look to corroboration, right? And, and so that's uh, much like with Lyle and Eric, um, the DA was, uh, uh, you know, arguing there's no corroboration. There's no corroboration. You can't believe them. You can't believe their testimony. Um, well, in the first trial, there was corroboration. That's why the jury was hung. And now we have even more corroboration, you know, with this letter that he had written to his cousin. So it really is about corroboration. I mean, you, you have a deceased victim. So obviously the victim's not going to be in court. Um, but, uh, or the perpetrator. Um, and, and so I think it's going to, it's going to be about prior bad act witnesses, people, other people that he abused and essentially this parallel between Menendez and Menudo, the Rosello. And we got Tali watching in uh, the Holy land near and dear to Carmela's heart. And we've got Western Australia in the house. So this letter, let's get to this letter. Uh, so Eric sent this letter to his cousin, Andy Cano. Cano died of a drug overdose in the mid-2000s. Uh, so there's sadness throughout this family, actually. Um, and in this letter, uh, Dr. John Delatore, the first part of it, he says, uh, this is now uh, Eric writing the letter, uh, I guess, to himself. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, to the cousin. And the cousin, he says to the cousin, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, it's a, it's a little, the overweight part, I, I reread that. I was like, wait, what does this have to do with anything? But um, 
but obviously there is fear and trepidation um, and the letter goes on, but that part of it, what do you make of it? Well, my, my, my initial thought when I heard it, you know, in particular, the, the curious part with the overweight thing is that uh, he, he's being crushed, you know, when he's being abused by, mm. uh, by his father. So the overweight thing is about the pressure that he's physically feeling with having someone on top of him. Um, but yeah, this, this, people are going to think whatever they want to think about the Menendez brothers. But the reality is, is that this letter is very indicative of someone who has been sexually abused. It's not uncommon to hear or to see things written like this from sexual abuse victims to some family member, to a friend, to some kind of confidant where they're describing the physical sensations that are going on with regard to the abuse that they're experiencing. Um, and just to show the court of public opinion among STS nation is split. Old lady Snoop says, haven't those men been through enough, free them, uh, then mm. give them tons of support. Cause it's not just a different world. It's like a different planet. Now from the eighties, freedom will still be tough. Followed by this from MC Spunky, no justification for killing parents, none. Um, the, the letter goes on, John Delatore, uh, Eric writing to his cousin, I never know when it's going to happen, meaning the abuse, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid, obviously they were talking about this prior, previously, you just don't know dad like I do. He's crazy, and he warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. So there you see the control aspect where he was basically reprimanded, told not to say anything to his brother. So um, I don't know. Let's say you were an expert witness here, John. What what would your what would your testimony be about this? Uh, well, my first testimony is going to have to include a, a full evaluation of, of the Menendez brothers. Because I'm not going in there with just a letter. I'm sorry. Even even though I may think the veracity of the letter is accurate, given the context with which the alleged uh, behavior is, I, I'm not walking in there only with just that. Um, if you're asking me to to just outline, are these things similar to what other sexual abuse victims experience and how they document uh, what has gone on with them, then yeah, I can absolutely say that. But if you want me to to say that, these things are absolutely indicative that the writer of this letter experienced sexual abuse. Then I need to speak to the writer of this letter and I need to know exactly what it was that was going on as to, you know, what prompted this letter in particular? How many other letters are there? How many other different people are there? Did he experience some kind of retribution if the father found out that he had written any of these letters? There's so much that goes into why people do what they do that I'm not just going to take a letter as face value. But, and, uh, but let us think, John, you need to take the letter as face value. I'm just thinking from the perspective of a lay person on the jury who doesn't have your expertise. Um, they hear from the brothers about the abuse. They hear from family members, um, this Andy Cano being one of them, talking about what uh, Eric or Lyle, I think he testified about Lyle, had shared with him. And then you have the letter and then you have the other witnesses who are testifying about his control and violence besides sexual abuse, uh, about how, you know, he would punch them and, you know, tell them to man up and uh, mother would swear him to secrecy. I mean, 
when you put all the pieces together, I think for a, for a, a juror, I think it's clear that that at least that they're not lying. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So what you would do with me in in that scenario is you're asking me all the different science related questions. Right. You're asking me all the research related questions. You're asking. Dr. Delatore, how many sexual abuse perpetrators have you treated right, and evaluated? Mm-hmm. Right? How many victims? Right? So that it's never just focused on Menendez himself. That's your job during closing argument. Right. But when you're when you're giving uh, when I'm giving direct and you're asking me these questions and you're letting me just recount all of that stuff, you're wanting me to say the narrative that makes the most rational sense to the jury. Correct. And that's giving like a bird's eye view. Right. Uh, just general kinds of stuff. But if you're asking me, Dr. Del Toro, you evaluated Eric Menendez. Why did he write this letter? That's a different question and right. I need yeah. more to it. Yeah. And I may not, frankly, I may not want that. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, but more generally just about, you know, that, that the idea that very simply that, you know, you've got the defendant saying a story. And so, of course, the prosecutor can get up and say, oh, don't believe them. It's an excuse, whatever. It's BS. But then you suddenly have all this other corroboration. That's where, you know, it becomes harder to argue that they're bullshitting, you know. Carm? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Dr. De La Torre. Uh, according to some of the, the things I, I read or, or I don't know where I picked this up, that the two brothers did not communicate with each other. And when they were already uh, a little bit older, it was the younger one, Eric, who was abused. And the older was at that moment not abused like on a nightly or two nights basis. It was younger. And they did not talk to each other about this. Is this common in these cases where... I know in families you don't talk and you have the family secret, but this particular aspect of being sexually abused by your father and not talking to each other about it. You know, here's the, here's the thing is that they couldn't just be scared of sexual abuse. They were also scared of physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Do abusers, uh, sexual abusers have preferences, meaning an age group that they prefer? Yeah, they absolutely do. Not all of them, but most of them do. So is it possible then that an abuser moved out of one victim because that victim aged out of his preference? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's possible. And the reason why you wouldn't then talk to one another, right, when you know that um, you know that your brother is now going to start taking on this abuse, you don't talk to him because you know that you're going to get the crap beat out of you if your father found out that the two of you have been speaking. So it forces a silo effect where you're you're forced to not reveal what's coming because what may happen as a consequence of that information being revealed is much worse than if you just kind of experience the abuse in that way. According to what I read is that shortly before they murdered their parents, they confided in each other a few days before, mm-hmm. they, they opened up to each other. The younger brother couldn't keep it in anymore and confided in the older one. The older one, confront. this is, I, I mean, it's not verified, but this is the, the narrative. The older one uh, called, uh, called out the mother, and then they had this very clear 
says that they are going to be killed because the father didn't threaten of beating them up or uh, you know take away their inheritance. The father threatened of killing them, mm. and and this uh, narrative does it make any sense psychologically for these types of situations? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where Sarah would put me on the stand and said, Dr. Delatore, isn't it possible then that the fear that they would die as the hands of their father, couldn't that then compel them to engage in some kind of defensive act, whether it looks pre-planned or not, isn't it possible? My answer is going to be sure. It is absolutely possible that someone could fear so much that they pre-planned engaging in some kind of violent act in order to to not have uh, some kind of you know violent act occur upon them. Yeah, absolutely that's possible. But does that comport with the law? And that's where the lawyer, that's where Sarah's got to come in and start maneuvering that argument around. But it, it, what we're really talking about, and let's go back to the analogy of, dom- of domestic violence and intimate partner violence, timing becomes the problem. When was the last time they were abused? When was the last time they were threatened with assault? The longer that time frame is in between the that threat versus them engaging in the act, the more likely it is that the jury's going to believe that it was premeditated murder and not self-defense. By the way, people are wondering that it would be unreasonable that right. they yeah, yeah, yeah. to fear. Yeah. And that's why you have voluntary manslaughter as the yeah. drop down. Uh Based on imperfect self-defense, yeah. um, that is—I mean—that is—that is an issue. And and you know, the prosecutors argued like we're not—we don't go around killing child molesters. I mean, we don't condone it. We don't—we prosecute them, but we don't. Except in Florida now. Well, that's Florida. <laughs> a, lot, a lot happens in Florida. <laughs> um, so, so people are going to be wondering about this letter. Just to clarify it, this cousin, whose last name is Cano, he died of a drug overdose in two thousand and three. Mm-hmm. The letter was written from uh, Eric to him in 1989. Uh, It was given by his mother, this guy Kano's mother, to a journalist in 2018 uh, who then passed it on to the brother's former counsel. That's why it is surfacing uh, in 2023. Um, Real quick, I just want to get STS Nation in here. So Sarah says, I remember the trial and their tears were real. It seemed like they showed true emotion, not just sadness for themselves because they were going to prison. It's interesting how uh, split people are. Triple Crown writes, could the sons have been writing such info to set up a narrative, basically setting up the stage to murder both parents down the line? That seems excessive, although it's something the state might try to argue if this ever went back to court. Um and then this com- comment here, so awful. Just think if the Menendez brothers had cell phones back then and could, could provide proof and prosecute their dad instead of killing him and their mother who was supposed uh, to protect him. But Sarah Azari, back to you. Uh, so during this first trial at 93, um, Kano testified back then that when Eric mm-hmm. was just 13, he mm-hmm. came to Kano, mm-hmm. the cousin, and told him that his father, Jose, was touching and massaging his genitals, and he wanted to know if that was normal. Um, and then he testified that when he proposed asking his own mother, Kano's own mother, about the situation, Eric swore him to secrecy and made him say, I'm not going to tell anyone about the alleged sexual abuse. It is hard to wrap our minds around this, and you mentioned this, but I mean, 
how what a crazy thought to think that all this was part of the evidence and a judge basically directed jurors not to listen to any of it to basically tune out all the sexual abuse it's an insane thought in 2023 right right in 2023 it is i don't know what the basis was of um and i'm not saying oj had anything to do with it but oj simpson was acquitted between these two trials right so there was that climate um that's what that's where we were at and um no that it it definitely it was almost like the trial number 1 was a test run and the admission of this evidence um you know ended up in favor of the defendants and uh i'm not saying the judge was carrying water for uh the prosecution but they very much sort of teamed up to keep this evidence out and and that that's exactly got the result that the prosecution wanted so Kano testified in the first trial not the second trial among other um, among other witnesses um and I think that's what really Garagos and Gar- uh, Gardner, I think is his name, have going for them is that the proof's in the pudding. You know, look, look how important this issue was that a jury hung on both brothers the first time and then found them both guilty of murder the second time. And now we have this additional layer of corroboration. So um, they've also done a lot of, uh, I mean, they are very rehabilitated. You know, from what I read over the years, you know, the stuff they've done while they're in custody, um, besides just being model inmates. um, Again, that's not really a factor here, but I think, you know, any judge that hears this obviously has all that in his mind, too. You know, it's hard to deny that. But I think it was also almost like a comedy of error in my perception, because first of all, they had this psychologist. And and um, uh, the younger one, Eric, couldn't keep the way they found out that they they committed the murder was they would have probably found it out the police in different ways, but but the psychologist told the court what the 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 uh, Menendez boy Eric told him. Mm-hmm. in a professional uh, confidential manner mm-hmm. and they and then it turned out that the psychologist himself had major major psychological issues he he, he was uncommon. <laughs> sorry yes, it's <laughs> unusual no offense my husband is a psychiatrist but we all have issues <laughs> yeah. um, i don't even hear these things and that the, my mother says but a therapist that one of the, a person claimed that the therapist raped her, the same therapist. Wow. And he was this part, this uh, guy called Jerome Oziel, who Oziel, uh, Oziel, Oziel in Serbian, Oziel okay. in, in <laughs> um, Northern Ireland nincompoop. Uh, question What was your behavior in prison? I'd assume any psychopathy in their character, uh, John would, uh, have revealed itself, would a deep psychoanalysis of the brothers be key in making any next decision? I mean, what Sarah just alluded to this, they, uh, they've been model inmates. Does that tell you anything? Um, they both got married. I think one of them was married twice now. Carm, mid-sentence, she loves to interrupt they, me. It's they unreal. They were seven years they were in therapy. In prison? In prison. 
with a very successful therapy, with a good therapist. Carm, I could be in therapy for 37 years. It wouldn't I make a would difference. I'm asking, I'm asking you, John, if um, <laughs> we'll still be hopeless. But, uh, right. I mean, what can you tell about their character, uh, if anything, from their behavior in prison? Uh, nothing, really. I mean, you can tell that they follow the rules well. I mean, really. And, and at the end of the day, isn't that really what we want people to do? Right. In society, don't we just want them to follow rules? I mean, prison is yeah, prison is just a microcosm of intensity. It's not really, you know, to, to think that there's rehabilitation that happens in prison is that that's a that's a far fetched idea. But I, I, is there psychopathy involved? I don't think that there's psychopathy involved. Then that, that that can actually be evaluated. So I'm not seeing anything where there's psychopathy and I'm not psychoanalytic, so I'm not going to say that someone needs to go under psychoanalysis. I do think that someone should undergo therapy, but I also think everyone needs to undergo yeah. psychotherapy. So yeah. we haven't learned anything really about them based on their behaviors in prison. And also so, people yeah. who are confined and detained and I mean, that you know. I mean, what choice do you have? You can't really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it, it, you know, the, whenever you try to commute a sentence, the argument that prosecutors make is, well, of course he's done well because what else could he do? Like he's, you know, he's got to do well in this setting. Yeah. This, is, this question is really interesting about Alan Dershowitz. Uh, I, I was going to say, Carm is terrified of being sued and now she has good reason. So this person has commented a few times, and I believe this is true, that he actually wrote a book about the abuse excuse, according to GX, Alan Dershowitz, your friend, Carm. My uh, friend is not my friend. Slandering and mocking the brothers. Today, we know that Alan was a close accomplice of Jeffrey Epstein. What okay, is, so I want to know what close accomplice means. Is this person, because Dershowitz, I believe, represented uh, Epstein in the in the Florida case where he went unscathed, right? I believe so, where, yes. he did it, where the prosecutors did not prosecute him and there was, you know, the whole blame game that happened afterwards. Is that what she means by accomplice? Because no, he's not an accomplice. He's an attorney and he did his job very well. I mean, that's what I would do for my client. But, uh, <clears throat> or does she mean that, you know, Jeffrey, I mean, uh, Alan Dershowitz was one of the many guys around Epstein who was engaging in the same conduct, which... I still don't have really proof of any proof of that. I'm not a fan of Alan Dershowitz. I think he's. Well, I don't guy. think it's the same conduct. If he was uh, picking 16 year old girls that weren't his daughters, it's a little bit. It's a little bit a mild version of of abuse than than do it to, to your six year old son. Now, Carm, the hate mail is going to come gushing in. Carm, you cannot. Carm is hardcore. Right on that. Right, up. Bridget. Right, Carm is no truer statements ever been said. Uh, and then uh, no, John I, Della Torre. I I have a thought. Sunday nights are difficult for me. Very I know he, he cannot Very share difficult. the live. John, um, what do you charge an hour? Because <laughs> are you free for the entire week? Go ahead, Carmen. Inter no, interrupt me one more time. No, but what I was, but but I was thinking when we were talking about that they were in, in prison, that they are exemplary prisoners. I was thinking that they were groomed for this prison because they were exemplary. They had to behave as children. All through their childhood, they had to be towing the line and be very, uh, you know, not deviate and obey orders in order to survive. Sure. And then they maybe they can 
since they went to jail at the age of 18 and 21, maybe they carried over this, this way of dealing with the world by just playing the, the, the you know, the, towing the line. Doing well, the it's interesting here because Misty Nolan says they were model children too, weren't they? They were kind of like the all-American children. That's an interesting comment. But John Della Torre, um, if you were, if, if Sarah hired you as an expert witness on this case and then the state had their way with you and said, well, okay, they were sexually abused and they killed their father, but why did they kill their mother too? Um, as an expert witness, how would you respond to that? Well, I think what I would say is what's the difference between their mother and their father? I mean, other than the person being abused, isn't the mother just as culpable because she wasn't there to protect him? Right. And, and, and then they're going to interrupt me and say, that's not what I asked her. I'm asking a different, like they're going to, what I'm going to say is that in their minds, they weren't two separate people. They were both a couple that were complicit in the yeah. abuse that they experienced. So you couldn't kill one without the other. Interesting. Old lady snoop. Well, and I think they looked to the mom to protect them. And then she would just like, whether it was denial or whatever, she would she would just like drag, you know, she would grab the I think it was Lyle, grab his uh arm and like pull him and and basically tell him to shut up. I mean, it was it's not what you expect, you know? So I don't know though. Is that more anger at the parent than it is fear? Well, I mean, so if that question, well, Dr. Del Torre, isn't that more anger than fear? Once again, I'm going to say, what's the difference in order to engage in the act, you have to build yourself up in order to do it. Or for the most part, you're just going to stay cowering in a corner. Yeah. When the two brothers revealed each the abuse to each other, that further imbued them with uh, the 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 necessary emotional effort that they needed. Mm -hmm. And yes, part of it is going to be angry, but wouldn't anybody who is experiencing sexual abuse feel anger towards the person being that was their abuser? I mean, that that just makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you better hire uh, John after this old lady Snoop. Where are, you, where are you based, John? Everywhere. 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 Today, everybody's everywhere. Old lady Snoop. Carm came proper and prepared today. I am paying attention. I'll bet most of us are, are so. So let's not forget to hit the like button. How about that? That's very nice. John, how about this comment, John? Because we've heard this. Uh, grown men can simply walk away. They like the money. Um, I'm 53 years old and there could be an argument made that I uh, am in arrested development. These guys were basically kids. One was a teenager yeah. still. The other was 21. What about this comment in your, uh, in your eyes about just being able to walk away? Grown men doesn't mean grown men, right? It is oh, certainly right. possible that while they might have been physically bigger and physically stronger, that doesn't mean that they actually had the wherewithal to, to, to use that power in any way. And as a matter of fact, if they've been abused for that long a period of time, well, all they've learned is that they never had any power. They never had any agency. They never had any authority. These guys, so it, it's, it's one of those things that I think we genderize abuse victims to say, well, if you're a man, you can never be abused because you're just physically stronger. The reality is, is that you can be physically abused. You can be sexually abused. Those things can happen. And the emotional and psychological consequences are not any different than it would be had you been a woman. It's just different now because people place, society places expectations of how you should be because you're a man.
And uh, Sarah asking if they are eligible for parole. I think they're life uh, in prison. They're LWAP, life without parole, um, unless something happens uh, with this habeas corpus. Carmela, you've raised your hand. Um, okay, I would like to bring up another subject that will certainly come up earlier or later, and that is... The King's uh, coronation. No. Okay. <laughs> that comes after this. Sorry. Uh, no, she usually I, takes us way off track like that. So no, I, was just I like guessing. to take I like to take us off because they will say, "Well, why did they buy Rolex watches? And right. Why did they live live it up?" And you know, this is also related to the anger in my book. Mm -hmm. I'm giving my uh, re reason reasoning, and I would like to uh, hear your reasoning. I think because they were, that was one other expression of anger and showing that they are now not powerless. And they were also immature and kind of naive and stupid to do this at that point in life, which made it like look, the optics was terrible. And this will also come up if there is ever a retrial uh, the, the way they behaved right after the murder. Yeah, I mean, that was a big argument, Carm, that they were on, on a spending spree, that they did this for financial gain, which is a very persuasive motive, even though you don't have to prove motive for murder. But um, I'm wondering if, John, John, is does abuse stunt your growth the way that, for example, addiction does? I mean, sure, it can. There's, there's nothing to suggest yeah. that. Uh, that you'd be a fully functioning, fully well-developed individual if you experienced sexual okay. abuse or abuse of any kind, particularly by your primary caregiver. There's nothing to suggest that you're going to be okay. So it's certainly possible that you would engage in highly, highly inappropriate acts simply because you don't technically know better. Yeah. And but it's was long-term. long-term. What? Long-term? long-term. From birth, literally almost from birth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and once again, the, the longer the abuse goes, the more stunted that you're going to be. So, yeah. I, and, and it's, it's also one of those things. It's, it's kind of like, you know, here's my opportunity to, to do finally what I get to do. So I'm going to just spend all kinds of money like any kid would. And that's the thing is that reviewing them as if they were fully functional you know, adult males, they, they weren't, if they were abused, they, they showed some level of emotional stuntedness. If all of this is just stuff that they fabricated, then of course they're going to spend the money because they're criminals, right? And criminals spend money. So either way, they were going to do something that they shouldn't have done. And uh, Sandra says, if you were sexually abused and you murdered your parents, spending sprees and partying is what happens Next, it's hard to tell sarcasm in a comment sometimes, but I think she's being serious. And I think Carm's uh, point is that it could be a normal uh, well, you know, kind of trigger reaction yeah. out of uh, extreme anger. Uh, or right. But, but I, I also don't want people to think that I will I will come up with a psychological excuse for any behavior. I, I won't do that. If I'm asked the question as to why someone would do that. I have a reason, but again, I'm not condoning the behavior that they did. They did kill their parents. Why they killed their parents, that's the thing that I think the jury needed to hear from the beginning. 
And when they did hear it, they were, it was tossed, you know, there was a toss up between mm-hmm. what they, what they should have done as a verdict. Mm-hmm. It, I don't, I'm not trying to condone or excuse or justify anybody's bad behavior, including murder. I'm just saying that we should take the step back and really take a look critically at why do people do what they do in order to understand what should we do about them? Yeah, and, and, and it's uh, 35 years later now. It's not like we are discussing if we should let them out of jail like a week after they get there. Well, they've been in prison, I believe, twice. Okay, I changed my mind. I want your mom on my jury. I suffer from like I'm very permissive and very kind of. You're you're Weird. sort of liberal like that, Carmen. We're we're gonna uh, we're gonna. By the way, they uh, they say that Dr. Burgess and Burgess, who is a friend of the show and the show Mindhunter on Netflix, is loosely based off of her work. Who is three years older than my mother and still teaches, works full time. Carm, we met her uh, here. Yes, yeah, she uh, she apparently testified or gave some sort of expert testimony in the first trial and believe really believed the brothers had been victimized. So I'm going to reach out to her. And see if maybe she would like to come on to discuss this. She um, is uh, a brilliant mind. We, but- had, we were invited to be guests on somebody else's um, podcast. And this person's father murdered the mother when he was 12 years old. Who's the Jody Plowshe case. 11. Yeah. But no, I have a, a point to make there. Joel asked him, how does he feel about his father, who is in jail ever since? Oh, this is different. Yes. No, this but, but is the, not Jody Plache. This is Collier Landry. Collier, Collier Landry. And uh, he answered, uh, Roy, Joel asked him, do you, do you, uh, how do you feel about your father? And the father is in jail now 30 years. And he said, I love my father. And the, and the Menendez boys when they were interviewed by Barbara Walters a bunch of years ago, when they were in jail already for, I don't know, a dozen years, they also said that they they are, they are, they love their parents. Hmm. It's a very confusing emotional. It's very confusing yeah. because you're looking, yeah, you're looking at this, you don't want to believe that this person is inflicting harm on you because you love them because they're your father or whatever, mother, father, whatever it is. But that's yeah. also part of the abuse, right? Yeah. That's yeah. that's also part of the cycle of abuse. Yeah. And, and John, I want first. Uh, well, Nightwood asks, "Is there a battered man syndrome?" Before you answer that, Carrie says, "I just watched Eric's testimony on Court TV, where John appears often, where he talked to the mom's mental emotional abuse as well, making him stay in a closet and calling him gay. So there was obviously a lot of intense mental abuse. But what about this? Is there, uh, you know, battered?" man syndrome as there is a battered woman syndrome uh no not not in the way that it's documented and researched uh for a battered woman uh but that doesn't mean that you couldn't you couldn't generalize it to men right that that you couldn't use those things that that we understand when it comes to the abuse of women in intimate partner and domestic violence to and apply it to men or any 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 individual right it doesn't doesn't matter man woman Right, you, you you could use it for for really anybody. Uh, GX says Kitty Menendez was not weak. All caps. Uh, her niece described her as very strong, forceful, a strong, forceful woman. She played That's a huge, part. yeah, a huge part in this. And uh, so, uh, Sarah Zari, uh, the the documentary is called 
Uh, the Menendez brothers and Menudo boys betrayed. It is on Peacock where you can see it where Carm, by the way, she's very proud of herself. She figured I out am. how to. I am. I'm bragging. She, you didn't notice. She usually calls the IT director, a.k.a. my wife, anything technically related, but she was able to watch it all on her own on her computer. So that was a I big moment. I got it on Peacock and I think I got a little passionate and paid like three times the $4.99 before I finally got it. <laughs> so, uh, Sarah, uh, Lyle says after this documentary came out and they were asked about it, he says, I always hoped and believe Eric is saying this, actually. I always hoped and believed that one day the truth about my dad would come out, but I never wished for it to come out like this. The result of trauma that an other child has suffered, meaning the guy from uh, Menudo. Um, so just back st to wrap this up now, um, is there possible that this petition goes to the court and Number one, a judge says they've served their time on vacating this sentence. That's option one. Is there also the possibility they says, let's have a retrial. And now the state would have to decide, uh, I guess, Los Angeles, California would have to decide if they wanted to try them again. Right. No, that's double jeopardy. They can't be tried again. OK, so then the only option is to. You, they, they either deny it or they grant it. And that's if it. they the writ. And if they grant the writ, then there are a few different um, uh, outcomes, um, generally speaking, not not just in this case, but um, the, the sentence could be modified or this or they could be released. Um, and so in this case, I think they would just be released because they've done so much time, so much of the time. I think it's 28 years or something already. Uh, Annette Tui says, groovy glasses to Sarah Azari, but that is followed up, not to burst your bubble, Sarah, by old lady Snoop, who says, OMG, yes, those glasses are everything second only to Joel's now. So <laughs> don't get ahead of yourself. So um, in case you haven't figured it out, the guy in the blue shirt is a very sharp mind, uh, quickly becoming a big friend of the show, uh, Dr. John Delatore. He is a PsyD, a licensed psychologist. As he says, he is ubiquitous. He is all over, everywhere, all at once, kind of like Superman. Uh, he's also a psychological analyst for television news and court shows like Court TV. Uh, John, you're not a lawyer, so let me ask you a legal question. Do you think this? Uh, you think these guys see freedom? Do you think that the judge will have um, compassion, empathy, and let these guys out of prison after all this time? Um. No, I'm not a lawyer, but that's a law degree. That is right there. I, I, I have a law degree. Oh, I'm, no, I'm not a lawyer. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. Um, I think it depends on what you mean by freedom, because I think the truth is, is that I think they already see freedom, even behind bars. I think they already see it. Whatever happens as a result of this writ, I think they're already in a place where they are comfortable with who they are and what they've done with their lives. Well, are you talking about the truth will set you free kind of situation that now sure. there's a letter and then there's this other person that was also molested by their dad. I think, I think on some level there's um, not to be literal because I don't know your world, but yeah. there's psychological freedom in that yeah. knowing that you're believed and you're not, you know, you're not crazy. You're like, you know, it's hard to sit there and, and prosecutors argue that you're lying. You're, you know, nobody should believe you. It's an excuse and not feel gaslit, frankly. Yeah. You know? And so I think there is a level of freedom in 
even after all these years, knowing that, wow, there's other people and, and there's a letter that I had written. And, and I think, you know, but I, I do think they deserve to be out. I think we're done. I mean, <laughs> they, they paid their dues. Sarah Zari, if you couldn't tell, she is a high-profile criminal attorney with some of the best glasses in the business, based out of L.A., although she's always on a plane somewhere. She has decades and decades and decades of experience. That old. She still looks like she's 25. I just got me too for saying that. Uh, Sarah's also been a media legal analyst across platforms. You can see her many nights on News Nation. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but you can see her there many nights. Uh, Tiffany Knox says, even if the letter was found, it is not proof. It's just a letter, which we'll get to in a second, Sarah. But look at this. Hey, Carm, this is your Sunday. Hugh Hefner, really, of all people, Hugh Hefner gets you, Carm. This is your Sunday, and look at the high numbers. You're cranking it out with the right case instead of wrong topics affecting your numbers. Uh, no, this is I John Delatore. She's a little bit of a narcissist, and she I goes am. and watches and listens to all her shows, and then she checks her numbers. She checks but her no, numbers. He sets me up. The I set her up. He sets <laughs> me up every Sunday night. He picks tonight is okay, but sometimes he picks some very far out esoteric topic that has nothing to do with what he discussed before. And where people are interested in the other topic, not the topic we are discussing. And then he shows it to me that his numbers are higher than the Sunday night. So basically, your son is yeah. bougie and manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. And manipulative. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? It's called that gaslighting now. Yes. The kids bougie, call that gaslighting. Bougie and manipulative. Guys, I have to leave pretty soon. Bye. Sarah, we're, we're letting you go. Leaving. Last thing. Do they, do, do they get vacated? Do they, do, are they allowed to go? And, and one other thing. Tell Chris Cuomo, my mother says his muscles are getting too big. She wants him to stop working. Really? I, I, I think the muscles are, I won't say it here. <laughs> I don't want you to get me too. He will kick my ass. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, does he, does he, do these guys see real freedom? Do they get out of prison? Uh, do I think they will? Yes. I don't know. I mean, I, I listen, I think it's a very strong writ. I mean, I really do. And I think that, 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 uh, it, it, there's there's a high possibility that that it would get granted, but I haven't seen the the DA's response, right? So I, I wonder what they're going to come up with besides, oh, you know, the regular stuff. But do they have something that is new as well? I don't know, you know. Parm, when you whisper, no, can I say something? No, no, Everyone no. hears they it through the microphone. I know. I didn't whisper. I um, this the re the, the Sarah's late to dinner. The is written in uh, California, right? The, yes. the case. Yeah. So we also have to consider, like you made a joke about uh, Florida. You know, I don't know how uh, how does the fact that it's happening in California impact this case. I mean, we're a pretty liberal jurisdiction. Um, I, you know, I mean, look, we just convicted uh, Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> We, I mean, that's not a child case, but still, um, it's abuse. We are, we are very protective of victims of abuse. Um, and I, and you know, whatever judge this is assigned to, I mean, I imagine it would go first to the trial judge. I don't know if that judge is still on the bench, but may I don't know, maybe gone for whatever reason. But, um, but I think that the, the, it, that judge or whoever this is assigned to would have had decades of experience in how this, the, the, 
abuse has played out in the court system and how we view it today. It's hard to set all that aside. Um, and, and then you have these two defendants coming in and showing corroboration of their testimony. I mean, that alone is persuasive, you know? Um, so we're, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I've only done federal cases in Florida, but I imagine you're a more conservative state than California, uh, in terms of state law, but I think it could, it couldn't be in a better place. I would say LA, New York, um, yeah, these are these are the places where I think we have more tolerance for things like this, and we get it, and we're you know we're protecting victims. Uh, my two cents: it's a good thing for the Menendez brothers that it's uh, California, a better chance of getting off. Angela says America loves Carm and Joel. Carm gets top billing, of course. Carm is an overachiever. We love you, Carm, and we'll end on this. I shame on everybody. you, Joel. Shame on you, Joel. I'm a terrible son. I know. They always say, shame on you, Joel, and the poor little mommy. Yes. Uh, everyone, love you. We'll be back tomorrow night with uh, Lori Val Daybell. I stole this from Joel. I love you, America. Love you, San, Ant San Antonio, as they say. Love you, LA. Love you, New York City. Until next time. Until tomorrow, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.